Thanks, guys. I have to compose myself a little bit. That's a beautiful song. Um, yeah. Hey, um, would you go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Isaiah chapter 11? Okay. Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, as you get there, I'm going to ask you a question. You can mull on it. What season in our American calendar uh, begins earlier and lasts longer than Christmas? I say the presidential election season. I mean, it starts like during midterms and continues for like two years. So we're just, we're in the, we're in the midst of uh, all kinds of people. We're still like a year out, right? And you're getting flooded with all the predictions and so forth. I'm going to give you an expert prediction. Okay? Here's what I predict. I predict that when it's all said and done, very few of us will be happy. Because isn't that just the way it is? How many of us are actually ever really happy, right? But hey, just imagine with me for, for a hot second, right? What would a perfect United States look like? What a perfect United States look like? And what kind of person would we need to get us there? See, I think election seasons, they stir in us that kind of longing, right? At least if we're not busy, like, shoving it away with cynicism and, like, uh, being dour about the current raft of politicians that we have to pick from and all that sort of stuff, right? But but would you believe that 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 kind of longing, that longing for the right person, to make things right again. That longing's not just something we feel, something universal, something shared throughout time and space. Hey, as, as we continue our build up to Christmas, uh, it's this longing that our Advent series is all about. The series that we're calling The Coming King. So, so far in our series, if you haven't been with us, we've talked about the need for a king. And then we've talked about the promise, the Lord's promise of a king who will meet that deep felt need, that that yearning for blessing, for shalom, for for a world that's made right, for glory like we just heard about, right? For for a king who will be the bringer of that shalom. And so maybe you're asking yourself if you've been following along, all right, we've been talking a lot about shalom and we've been talking a lot about a shalom bringer. What does that look like? What does that actually look like? Hey, I'm glad you asked. Well done. Our, uh, our passage today is about that. Today we're going to, to look at what were we made for? What is shalom? And who is the one, what kind of person does that person have to be, that leader have to be to bring us that shalom? Today we're going to look at a picture of the reign of the king, the king we need king our God promises. So if you're able and willing, would you stand as together we read Isaiah 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. You're going to hear glory all through this passage. 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. The true word of the living God, given to you because he loves you. Let's pray. Father, we stand in need of glory. We stand in need of your shalom. And when so much around us does not look that way, we stand that much more in need of it. So Lord, I pray that for the next few minutes, Would you lift our eyes off of ourselves and off of our surroundings and fix them on you, our King of glory. Father, would you fill our hearts with with your vision and your dream of what will one day be. Fill us with you, Lord. We pray this in your name and for your glory, Lord. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. All right, so our passage today actually divides really nicely into two uh, parts. So guess what? We got another two-point sermon, right? But we're going we're gonna to look at our passage in reverse order. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10 first because that part describes the reign of the king. And our guiding question as we look at this section will be like, well, what does shalom look like? We've been talking about shalom. What does it actually look like? And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, again, reverse order, because that describes the king, the king whose reign brings shalom. And the question that we're going to ask there is, well, what kind of king brings shalom? All right, so let's, let's kick stuff off with uh, the reign of the king, verses 6 through 10. We're ans- answering the question, what does shalom look like? So maybe you're asking yourself, well, wait a second, okay, definition, please, right? What do we mean when, we're, when we say shalom? Okay. So shalom is just the Hebrew word for peace, which... In the Bible, isn't just the absence of conflict, right? We've said shalom is that yearning that we all feel for the good life, for wholeness, for prosperity, for, for everything to work out the way it's supposed to. Shalom is the right ordering of things, the way God made them to be. And that, that's the picture that Isaiah the prophet paints for us. Um, hey, the Bible has a lot of these kind of pictures. Here's my question. Don't these pictures just kind of make your bones ache a little bit? Make your bones ache for this kind of world. Um, Here's my question, though. 
Why? Why do you feel that ache? See, isn't, isn't it interesting that even though you have personally never experienced this kind of world, this kind of shalom, you still ache for it. You still yearn for it. That's strange, right? I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like saying you have a craving for this, for this dish that you know would be your favorite, but you've never actually like seen it. You've never smelt it, let alone ever tasted it, and yet you long for it, right? Hey, how can you yearn for something you've never experienced? For a world that you've never lived in? You know how? Because the Bible tells us that's the world we were made for. It's the world we were made for, the shalom that we were made for, the world we lost when we set up our own counter kingdoms. Counter kingdoms. Hey, for a lot of y'all, this, is, this will be a familiar story, but, but maybe we'll hear it for the first time, right? See, the Bible tells the story of a God who created everything in existence as his kingdom. It was a world of shalom. A universe in perfect order filled with delight, a place of beautiful, uh, endless, fertile possibilities, right? Just imagine with me what that would look like, a kingdom where he would reign, uh, over which he would reign, and and that would reflect his own beauty and his glory. Uh, And he put this kingdom under the loving care and dominion of, and stewardship of creatures made in his image, human beings, you and me. Get this, though. Those creatures weren't made to be kings. Those creatures were made to be royal servants, governors, as it were, over the Lord's domains, right? But um, we human beings, eh, we were supposed to, our, our job was to spread the image of God over the universe as, as we lived into our stewardship and what God had called us to. However, we believed the lie, right? From the devil, masquerading as a snake, a lie that we could be like God, that we could do things our own way, that we could hmm, do what was right in our own eyes and be better off for it, right? And so we rebelled against our king. We set up a counter kingdom a place where we could play God, a place where we could do what was right in our own eyes, and y'all, you can look around. How's that going? We rebelled. And here's the thing, right? Neither, neither us nor the world that we live in was made for us to be king. And so when we rebelled, we broke. Our world broke. Our world broke. And so now... Because we rebelled against God, we lost relationship with him. We lost the shalom that we were made for. And now we're, we're eaten by death and by despair. We're, we're haunted by this ache for the Lord that we were made for and by the ghost of shalom that we were made to live in. That's a sad story, but the Lord wasn't about to let it end there. See, he, he wasn't going to let his image bearers uh, perish in this, in this hell that we had created. He was going to set up his own kingdom against the counter kingdom. And so he called a man named Abraham, grew that f- family of Abraham into a nation. And his purpose was through that nation, through his people, he would give the nations, the lost nations of the world, a picture of what shalom might look like. 
and he was going to use his people to draw in the lost. So let's, let's focus now on the Lord's kingdom. That's the counter kingdom. Let's look at the Lord's kingdom. Look at what shalom looks like. Hey, there are three marks of shalom that I think our passage walks through, so we'll, uh, we'll deal with these. Uh, first, just look at, look at verses uh, six and seven. If you had to like give a couple words, what, is, what, what do you think verse, verses six and seven, how, how would you describe this mark of shalom? I mean, Isaiah the prophet, he's, he's using these uh, images in nature to paint a picture of peace, right? Peace and security. A, a peace and security that like you and I have never experienced, right? Think about, think about our natural order, our world. In our world, the animal kingdom out there, it's, it's a place, of, it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? A place that seems to be governed by the survival of the fittest rule. A, uh, it, and y'all, nature for all of its beauty and, and glory and all that sort of stuff, there's still this savage brutality to it that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, a lot of us that feel like, I, I just don't know that that feels right, right? Um, especially when the bear is after our own livestock and our own kids, right? And so just how radically different is the, the natural order that Isaiah paints here? Uh, hey, if you're like, wait, the idea of lions and wolves and bears uh, napping serenely with lambs doesn't connect, doesn't make sense to me. It wouldn't have made sense to Isaiah's, the people in Isaiah's day either. In fact, I think it probably would have made less sense to them because they're far more familiar with these animals than we are in our culture, right? Why is he doing this though? It's an effective image, don't you think? The point behind this? See, the absence of conflict, the Lord's shalom, is so pervasive, so rich, so real, so it, it seeps down. It's, shalom is so complete. It seeps down even into the, like, the natural order. Uh, even predators lose their instincts to kill and prey or palling around with what you and I might consider their natural enemies, right? Um, hey, and get this, verse six, a little child shall lead them. The picture here is God has so restored dominion to his creatures that even the littlest human being can shepherd well, in Isaiah's day were some of the largest domesticated animals and some of the most fearsome predators. Even a little, little kid has that kind of dominion. That's what we were made for. All right, it's not a stretch to say uh, if the Lord restores the natural order Maybe this, this is a picture of nations restored, right? It's not just nature restored, but nations restored. In fact, a lot of commentators, because uh, this, this chapter is located in a very like political uh, dialogue that Isaiah is having, a lot of commentators will say it's actually more about the political scene than it is about the natural scene, right? Because in, this, in, in that understanding of things, the predators are the predatorial nations, Nations like Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, who were constantly preying on the people around them, on the helpless nations like Israel. And the image that we have here is that 
These historic enemies that were divided and like fighting against each other all the time, people that lived, like the little nations lived in fear of the big nations, they're not enemies anymore, right? And they're not just friendly, not just coexisting even. Uh, They're at peace. They're one. That's the picture that Isaiah paints. Right, but it sounds nice. That, and, and don't you yearn, don't we crave that kind of peace, that kind of security? But that mark of shalom, peace and security, only actually exists if there's a second mark of shalom. It's not just about peace and security, but the absence of evil. Look at verses eight through nine, right? Um, I want to focus on this phrase here. They shall not hurt at the beginning of uh, verse nine. Um, so you and I, uh, we, we look at that word hurt and it means like harm, right? Uh, the, the Hebrew word there, uh, is, is a little more broad, a little more vague. In fact, Isaiah uses it about 35 times in his writing. Uh, and often we translate that word for harm evil, in which case, if you were to translate this really woodenly, it'd be like, they shall not cause evil on my holy mountain. Because the, the Hebrew word there is fairly broad, kind of like our word for bad. So you know how um, you can have, you can eat a bad apple, right? You can be dealt a bad hand. You can have a friendship go bad. You can be a bad person, too. It's a fairly broad range of meaning. So badness, this, this evil, it's not, it's not mere, it's, it's a moral thing. And it's also like the effects of our badness, us being broken. It's what we bring, it's the wrongness that we bring into the world. It's the opposite of shalom. And Isaiah, uh, he doesn't just give us, they shall not cause evil or destroy on the mountain. He he also gives us a, a, a verbal picture to go with this, right? Look at verse eight. Why can a little kid, a little baby, go play in the rocks where the rattlesnake is, where the rattlesnake lives? Snake hole's empty. Snake is gone, right? Then what does that mean? Well, I think Isaiah's pointing us back. He's pointing us back to the garden, right? He's pointing us back to, back in the garden, the father of evil, the, 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 the author of wrongness himself, the devil who showed up as a snake in the garden and introduced badness. Isaiah is saying, in the Lord's kingdom, he's gone. He is gone. He has no home. He isn't a threat. Evil is absent. The snake has been crushed under the heel of the king. So not only... Do we have that peace and security? We have the peace and security because evil is absent. And then there's that third mark of shalom. With evil absent, the universe can know what it was made to be in the first place. It's a universe restored to relationship with God, right? So where do we see that? Look at verses nine and 10. Um, Isaiah says, you guys might remember this from Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk picked up on uh, this phrase that first shows up in Numbers 14. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
See, the Lord intends to flood this earth, not with the waters of judgment like in Noah's day, but he intends to flood it with his knowledge. And knowledge in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, isn't a just cognitive thing where you're just like, I know about. It's a relational thing. One day, every square inch of this universe will know the Lord's presence in a way that like a husband is known by his bride. That intimate knowledge of of one's character, one's person, who one is. Our world will enjoy that. The Lord is determined to restore that to his people. And you can see that also in, in verse Verses 10, right? Where, where the nations now are flocking to Israel's banner because they want to know the Lord. They seek to know the king of Israel, right? Um, hey, does all that sound amazing? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be wonderful if we had that? It sounded amazing also to the people in Isaiah's day. Just a little bit of broader context. We don't have time to get into all of it. Um, but when Isaiah was writing this, Israel was anything but a picture of shalom. In fact, they, they, were, they were imploding as the epitome of, of a counter kingdom under the reign of what I think is probably like the second worst king in all of Israel, King Ahaz. He was 12th in the line of David. Um, and you can read a lot more about the nightmare of his reign if you want to. You can write down these passages. 2 Kings chapter 16 in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, those describe what was going on in Ahaz's reign. But as a result of this evil man doing what was right in his own eyes it, and actively opposing the Lord, Israel had suffered some of the, its worst defeats and setbacks as a nation, including invasions from all sides, north, from the east, and, and from the south. Um, they'd lost they had major territorial losses and multiple like fearful battles, including one, y'all, imagine the cost of this. One, in one day, they lose 120,000 people. Imagine what our nation would feel like to lose that many. See, everything seemed to be falling apart. Under Ahaz's awful reign, David's family tree seemed dead, and shalom was just kind of like this laughable idea, right? This dream. David's sons just weren't delivering, and it's in that context. Isn't this so like our God? It's in that dark context that the Lord gives his, his prophet Isaiah a vision, a promise of, of David's stump with new life. He, he gives him this word of guaranteed shalom, guaranteed because God was not just going to raise up a king, he was going to raise up the king, the king who would bring true and lasting shalom. So let's look at that, right? That, that's the question for our second point. Well, what kind of king brings this sort of shalom? We want this shalom. It sounds awesome. How do we get it? Who brings it, right? Uh, well, it starts where, where you might expect it to start, right? In verse two, with it, to have a king who brings us this kind of shalom, he must be a king in, in right relationship with God, right? Let, just look at verse two. 
What, what hits you again and again and again? The king, the Lord's king, is a, is a man on whom the spirit of the Lord rests, a man who is empowered by the Lord's spirit, right? Uh, why does that matter? Two reasons. First, it matters because of the story of God's people. Think with me, all right? Um, back to the beginning, because everything always goes back there. When God first created man, out of the dust, you read Genesis uh, 2, 2, verse 7, right? The Lord breathes into the man that he's created. He breathes his breath, his wind, his spirit. All those, are, all those words are the same word in Hebrew. He breathes that into the man. And it was that connection with God that made him alive. And so when we as human beings rebelled against God, we lost that. We lost that connection. That's why in the Bible, um, the Bible will call people who are separated from connection with God dead. Even though you and I might look at them and think, well, they seem alive to me. They're separate. They lost that connection with the Lord, with God. And in Isaiah's day, um, being filled and empowered by God's spirit. It seems very rare throughout the Old Testament to find somebody who actually is filled with the spirit of God, right? Um, But the kind of shalom that we just looked at, the kind of shalom that we all long for can only happen with a king in that kind of living connection to God. A king who could imitate his father God uh, because like in, in verse three, his delight... His joy in life, the the aroma about him is one of fear or reverence to the Lord. And and so we need need a spirit-filled king because of the story of God's people. We need reconnection with him, right? We also need a spirit-filled king because of the needs of God's people. What do we need? What do God's people need? Well, look at verse 2. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. Okay, break these down. In order to govern well, the king would need a spirit of wisdom and understanding. In order to protect God's people against their enemies, he would need a spirit of counsel. Think military counsel and might. Uh, Spirit of wisdom, Solomon had that. The spirit of counsel and might, King David had that. In order to be the standard of morality that God expected his king to be, so that all people could look at the king and say, that's the true ideal Israelite, I'm going to imitate him, he would need to have knowledge, knowledge of the word of God, and the fear, the reverence of the Lord, right? None of Israel's kings perfectly had that. And guess just how much of all these kingly qualities King A has exhibited? Zilch. Zero, nothing. You're scraping the bottom of the barrel. You're digging a hole. You keep digging. He didn't have any of them. King Ahaz hated the Lord. But even the best of Israel's kings were really just, at best, kind of a dim reflection of of what an ideal king should be, right? And yet it's it's that connection with God that spirit-empowered connection with God that would allow the king to do what, what I think most of us want from our political leaders in the first place, isn't it? See, we want people who govern 
to maintain right relationships among men, among man, humankind, between people. Because in the end, uh, it's, the issue isn't that wolves are eating lambs, right? At heart, the issue is conflict between man and man, between human beings. And so Israel needed a king that we need, a shalom bringer who would uphold justice. There are three things here. We're going to work through them real quick. We need a king who would uphold justice. You see this in verse, verse four, right? Uh, he's not just someone who, um, he would uphold justice for people who didn't typically have access to a king or recourse to the king, the poor. How is a poor person going to get their claim all the way up the ladder to the king, right? The poor or the meek. And he's the embodiment of the law, and so therefore he's, he's not swayed by his own preferences or limited by his own experiences, right? That's why uh, Isaiah says uh, he's not, he will not judge by what his eyes see or, or by what his ears hear. So he's not limited by, by his own experiences. So he's a man who can uphold justice perfectly. He's also, the shalom bringing king, not just upholds justice, he can uproot evil. You see that uh, in uh, verse four, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Because again, Y'all, there can't be lasting shalom while the snake hole's around, while there's evil. So he upholds justice, he uproots evil, and then final, finally, he models true humanity. The king, again, we often miss this, but the king in Israel was supposed to be this exemplar, this paragon of what it meant, meant to be a real human being a real human being, one who lived the way we were made to live. And what does that look like? Well, we were made to be a people of righteousness, right? It says, righteousness shall be the belt about his waist, faithfulness the belt about his loins. What does righteousness mean? Well, it's, it's that moral uprightness that, that perfectly conforms to the perfect standards that our perfect God has, that rightness. So he's supposed to model righteousness. He's also supposed to model faithfulness. And faithfulness is we were made to be a people who were lovingly loyal to God, lovingly loyal to his standards, lovingly loyal to him, uh, obedient to him. And so the shalom bringing king, he binds this about him like like a belt. Righteousness and faithfulness are close to him. And, and they are the means by which he is girded for action, ready to go. Um, all right. That's a tall order, isn't it? Think about it. You take that kind of king and you measure any one of our politicians up against him. How does he do? Let's be honest, though. It's, it's, it's easy for us to go and, and blame those people. Let's measure ourselves up against that. How do we do? And yet that, that was the king that Israel needed. Here's the kicker, right? Without that kind of king, you cannot have the kind of shalom that we look for. And y'all, human beings from before like from before we have recorded history, um, human beings have been yearning for this kind of king. We've been looking for this kind of king. And y'all, 
We could search until the sun grows cold and we wouldn't find this kind of king, this kind of leader, right? And so praise God, he gave us one. He gave us the king that we need, right? He provided the king, a man who is more than a man, but a God-man. The one who is perfectly filled with, with God's spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. One who could perfectly mirror his father God because his delight, his, his joy in life, the aroma about him was of this fear and reverence to the Lord. One who would judge, not by just what, what his eyes see and what his ears hear, but as we read about, as Brandon read earlier in uh, John 7, judge rightly, righteous judgment. One who would uphold justice for the meek, one who, and the poor, one who, who would root out evil and bring shalom. He's, he's Jesse's root. Uh, he's, he's the rescue signal to the nations. He's the rest giver. He's the glory winner. He's the shalom bringer. He's the king. He's Jesus, the king. Hey, friend, is this your king? Is this your king? I know you yearn for shalom. That yearning is deep inside of us. We may express it differently. I know you yearn for shalom. But you cannot have the reign of the king without the king. You cannot enjoy shalom without the shalom bringer. So here's my invitation for you, right? Um, We all yearn for that kind of politician, don't we? We all yearn for that kind of world to be made right. Here he is. Here he is. Will you, will you submit to him? Will you submit to him as your king and as your Lord? Um, Or, because here's here's the beautiful thing about that, right? That kind of king comes freely. He gives himself to us. And that kind of king offers his shalom freely. You don't have to pass a citizen's test to get into his kingdom. You just have to submit to him. He offers you this freely. So will you submit to him while while he's offering you his shalom? Or are we going to wait and continue in our rebellion until the day that he does come, because he will, to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and come exert his kingship in that way? Hey, if you are a Christian today, um, here's what I want for you. This Advent season, as you feel longing, even better, heading into next year, as we we hear the predictions and read the polls and start doing our own, uh, you know, measuring up uh, folks and do the awkward, like, do we talk about politics? Do we not talk about politics? All that stuff. Here's what I want for you, okay? Having this kind of king ought to give you a measure of, like, rest, right? Because in the end... Yes, what, what happens here matters, and we're highly involved in this. We're not, we're not like uh, so heavenly-minded we're of no earthly good. However, 
we are heavenly minded. We are heavenly minded. Friends, you have the ruler you're looking for. Are you, are we so wrapped up in what's happening here that we lose sight of him? We have the king. We have our God. He, our Jesus is seated on the throne. Here's the other thing. Live into your inheritance, right? I think, especially these days, I think it's easy for us Christians to get dour and dark about what we see happening around us. And there's a lot of darkness to be, to be feared, right? Um, but your inheritance is shalom. The Lord has secured this. Here's what's beautiful about that. Not even death can take it from you. He's so secured it, nothing can touch this kind of shalom. This belongs to you. And so we wait. We wait as people of hope, as people of expectation. We live as windows and mirrors or uh, little windows into the coming shalom that will one day flood this earth. Do you live that way? Do people know you and, and, and they can smell the aroma of heaven on you? Smell, they, they can see a picture of what things might one day look like when the Lord comes and reigns here on earth. Because one day, as surely as he came 2,000 years ago, he will come again. And when he does, he will completely crush the counter kingdom. He will empty that snake hole for good. And his kingdom will know uncontested shalom. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And King Jesus will reign forever and ever. Amen. And even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for you. But I thank you that we do not long for you the way the people of the Old Testament did yearning to see this shadowy image. But we know who you are, and we know what you came to do. And so we yearn and we long with hope and expectation. And so, Lord, would you hear our prayers? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.